Well, last, last week as we navigated Ice-mageddon, we attempted to, um, really, I'm really just surprised we're all here today. It's really a 21st century miracle, but uh, we attempted to navigate the, uh, the story of Jacob. We covered about 10 chapters in the book of Genesis, so it was, it was a little uh, uh, tricky to, to compact all that information and Jacob was somebody, as we kind of look back over his story, that we thought, like, man, there just really isn't a whole lot noble about him. Um, he had a lot of flaws. And, um, you know, it just reminds us of how sometimes God uses us even when we're not at our best. But Isaac, who we spent some time on kind of before Christmas, was the son of Abraham. And Isaac had twin sons um, from his wife, Rebekah, and their names were Esau and Jacob. And as the story is told, it says that, that um, Isaac loved Esau, the oldest, more. But that uh, Jacob uh, was, was Rachel's, I'm sorry, Rebecca's favorite. Um, and, and when she was pregnant with these twins, God had spoken to Rebecca and had told her in advance that, that the older was going to serve the younger. And so we watch as the mother and son lied and schemed to steal the birthright from the oldest son, Esau. And after that happened, then uh, he goes off, Jacob uh, goes off to find a wife. And through a series of events, he ends up marrying two sisters, um, the older one, Leah, who was kind of a consolation prize thrown in, and then Rachel, who was the one it says that, that he loved the most. And so he's got these two wives, and it says that after 20 years kind of away from home, he finally returns, and he comes back with 11 sons and, and more daughters and two wives and two concubines. And, and as you can imagine, their family was just an absolute mess. And we'll get into more of their dysfunction today. But to make matters worse, towards the end of that journey home, a 12th son is born. Uh, his name was Benjamin, but in the process, Jacob's beloved wife Rachel dies. So that's where we're going to pick the story up today. If you want to open your Bibles to Genesis 37. Genesis 37, that's where we'll start. In verse 1 it says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. He brought their father a bad report about them. So, first of all, we need to understand Joseph is the 11th son, but he's the first son of Rachel, who was like Jacob's favorite wife, Okay. And, and he was 17 at the time. Um, it says kind of where his story kind of moves to the forefront here. And let's just remember that these 12 sons come from four different women. So you can imagine the, the jealousies and the contentious atmosphere that probably surrounded that family at all times as the brothers kind of jockeyed for dad's approval and it had all these different moms and um, so it comes as no surprise then that Joseph goes to his father with a bad report about his brothers. His brothers were kind of notorious for 
for not being uh, of the most high character. I want you to flip back just two chapters to, to verse uh, chapter 35, verse 22. We'll see just an example of this. So 35 verse 22 says, while Israel or Jacob, remember God changed his name when they wrestled, was living in that region, Reuben, who was his oldest son, went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. So Reuben, the firstborn, would have inherited his dad's concubine one day upon his death, but kind of like the prodigal son in the New Testament, he goes and and kind of tries to seize what's his before it's time. And he also is sleeping with his brother's mom, which is complicated, okay? So this was all very arrogant on Reuben's part, okay? And just as a little side note here, I think it's important for me to let you know this, that, that all of this stuff that's going on, the multiple wives and the concubines, God doesn't approve of any of this, okay? Um, this is not how he set up marriage. When you look back at the garden and Adam and Eve and how he saw a husband and wife coming together, it didn't include multiple wives and all this stuff. So all the, the examples of, you know, kind of starting from Abraham on down where you've got these additional wives and servants that they take in, all, all of those examples are pretty much just men trying to take um, matters into their own hands. A lot of times it had to do with infertility and the, like these promised children that God said they were going to have, but they were impatient on God, so they kind of started just trying to say, well, I'll sleep with this girl and maybe God will fulfill the promise through this person. And so um, it's all sinful, um, so just making sure that we understand that. I think it's important, though, also to note that it, it, is, it is complicated because women in that culture had no ability to, like, you know, go to college and become a dental hygienist and pay for their own family or something like that. Like, they were absolutely at the mercy of the men in their life to be provided for. So it'd be very easy for a man, under the guise of caring for the, the poor and the vulnerable, to take in a widow or maybe, um, you know, they had rules about like if your brother's wife died that you had to take her in because then she was a widow left by herself and provide us an heir for her. And so it was a lot more complicated than we think, um, whether it was sinful or not. It was, it was still just a complicated culture in which they lived. So let's look at verse 3 and 4. So, so Joseph comes back with kind of this bad report. It says, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he had made, and he made um, an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So here we go again. So Jacob himself Remember, it was, it was the older brother, Esau, his older brother, that his dad chose as a favorite. So Jacob himself had been like, you know, kind of had lived this tortured life of not being the favorite, and now he picks a favorite son, which is like, how do you not see that this is going to be bad, right? So he picks a favorite son, which, which really causes Joseph a lifetime of trouble. And then the sin of favoritism is so incongruent with the nature of God and who he is. Paul puts it very clearly in Romans 2.11. He just says, for God does not show favoritism. He loves all of his creation the exact same. He died for all of us equally. 
But it didn't just stop there with just, you know, letting everybody know that he's my favorite. He took it another step forward by, by making for Joseph this, this richly ornamented robe, right? Broadway calls it Joseph's amazing technicolor dream coat, right? Looks something like this. Now, if your brother walked in the door dressed in that thing, you'd probably beat him up too, right? Clay Aiken, yes, in post, post-American Idol days. And this coat pops up in popular culture. We still see it today on Seinfeld. Kramer is dressed in his multicolored coat. And even just in recent months, Bruno Mars in his... 24 karat magic video has got kind of a, a cut off shorter version of the Technicolor dream coat, right? Yeah, actually, that was me on my vacation last week. Uh, yeah, just. No, so this, this coat's popped up from time to time, but the significance of this robe, it can't be, it can't be overstated. Like, this robe um, just shouted out to everybody just prestige and, and power. It was, it was a, a white-collar garment, which was like basically signifying to all the other brothers that, hey, you guys are going to do the, the hard work, and this guy over here is going to kind of live the easy life, okay? And even though Joseph was the 11th son, he was the first son of Jacob's first favorite wife, Rachel. So with this gift, he's also basically telling Reuben and all the other brothers that, hey, Joseph is the one that's going to get the birthright, the blessing, which was a big deal. It usually went to the oldest son. And in some ways, Jacob's probably thinking, well, I'm, get, I'm glad Reuben kind of screwed things up a while ago so that I could kind of pass over him and, and feel justified for doing that. So all of this favoritism and this, this code especially delivered into the hands of this immature 17-year-old Boy, Joseph was just kind of a recipe for disaster. And then as if the robe wasn't enough, Joseph kind of drops this bomb on his family. So I want you to look at verses 5. It says, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream and this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So bottom line here is that these were dreams that he didn't need to share with anyone. You know? I mean, there's just some times where we just need to kind of keep things to ourselves. It's kind of like when your kids come down to breakfast in the morning and they're like, Dad, I had a dream about you last night. You died. I'm just like, I don't want to hear that. I got enough problems in this life. I don't need that bad karma hanging around my neck all day, right? Just keep it to yourself. And obviously, these were things in their culture that an 11 son just didn't say out loud. But the reality was is that, that Joseph was more concerned about how cool all of this sounded for him 
that he was completely oblivious to how others might receive this news, that it might not be a favorable dream for everybody else. So it's no surprise that all of those factors bred into his brothers this intense jealousy and hatred. Okay, so let's look at verse 12. It says, Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Yeah, we just said that. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him, but they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said, they, uh, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns or a well and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So Joseph is sent out on this journey. <clears throat> to check on his brothers, and while he's still a ways away, the brothers catch sight of him in that, that dang robe, right? And he's strutting along, you know, in his robe, and they're like, oh man, we've had it. Let's just get rid of this guy. And so they hatch this plan uh, to kill him. And Reuben, the oldest son, though, he, he knows that he's responsible to kind of be the protector of all the brothers. And he's like, oh, man, I can't let that happen. Let's just, let's just throw him in this well over here. And he's thinking, well, maybe I can come back and, and grab him out of the well later and save him. Okay? So, so there's all this stuff going on. And, and jealousy is a powerful thing. And before we get too down on these brothers here... I think it's important for us to kind of check our own hearts. Remember, we talked about how we, we need to read the Bible like there's a mirror on one side just kind of staring back at us. Because all of the supposed villains in Scripture are a lot more like us than we probably are willing to admit. How often have we been jealous and envied others? Maybe it's been a sibling or a friend in your life who's maybe just a little prettier or has better hair, or maybe they're just a little bit more athletic or stronger, or maybe they've got just some amazing talent. Um, maybe they just have grown up in a little bit more money than you, and so they have more things. Maybe they are a better communicator, they're more outgoing, better nunchuck skills, whatever. <laughs> I want you to actually just, if you could, just take a moment, moment and just close your eyes. If you could do this for me. And I want you to picture in your mind someone in your life that you've been jealous of for whatever reason, that you've kind of envied them. And I want you to think about the emotions that you experienced while that jealousy was kind of roaming around in you. What, can you give name just in your mind here to some of the emotions that you felt 
during that season or that time, or maybe you're even feeling right now in a situation. Anybody willing to kind of to name those emotions? What, what kinds of things are going on in your head? Yeah. Annoyed. Annoyed? Okay. What else? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What else? Yes. Okay. Disappointment or dissatisfaction with yourself. Yeah, Jake. What's that? Justified. Justified? Okay, like you feel like you've got reason to be. Yeah, that's good. And you guys know this because you've experienced it in life, no matter how old you are probably, that if left unchecked or unconfessed, those emotions that you have, those feelings of jealousy can stir up into bitterness. You find yourself saying things about other people, gossiping, slandering. And they haven't really done anything wrong necessarily. Maybe they have, but mostly it's just that we we hate that they have something that we wish we had. And it really just kind of reveals a discontent in us over kind of our circumstances or kind of who God made us to be. And it can lead to some really ugly things whether we say them or not, of just thinking things in our minds that are just really not godly, that if we probably spend some time thinking about it, maybe we've been ashamed of at times. So let's look at verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh. They were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him after all. He is our brother, our own flesh and blood. So his brothers agreed. So now we really see how cold and callous these guys are, right? They throw him into an empty well. And while he's over there, probably screaming and crying their names, they're eating a turkey sandwich and a bag of chips, right? That's how bad this is. And it's kind of at this point of the story, too, where I kind of like took a step back and I was like, I wonder what... Joseph is thinking now at the bottom of the well. Like, I wonder if he's kind of playing the record back and thinking, man, I probably shouldn't have come across like that. Maybe shouldn't have said that or shared that dream. Or I think he's probably taking inventory a little bit. And now this situation is really tricky because while he's screaming and they're eating lunch, some travelers are coming. And they're thinking, this is going to look really weird when we're just over here ignoring the cries of the guy in the well and doing nothing. So Judah kind of steps up with this plan. It's like, we got to get him out of there. Maybe we should just sell him, and uh, then maybe we can at least make some money off of him, right? He's a real sweetheart. Never is there a conversation 
about, man, maybe we should kind of check ourselves. Maybe we're part of the problem. And all of us, instead of brooding and brewing up schemes to punish others so that they get what they deserve, maybe our time would be better spent kind of cleaning up our own side of the street and asking ourselves, how am I sinful? How am I in equal need of mercy as the person that I'm jealous and envious of? Look at verse 28. It says, So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. So apparently Reuben hadn't been a part of the plan because it says he kind of comes back and he he freaks out. He's like, where is he? Because he knows his father is going to hold him responsible for this tragedy. And here's where we start to really see some foreshadowing of Christ as well. It says that they dipped his robe in blood. I want you to hold your finger there and flip over to Revelation 19 at the very back of your Bibles. Revelation 19, verse 11. And this is all kind of uh, prophecy of when Jesus returns. And in verse 11, it says, I saw heaven, this is John, the disciple, writing this. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. He's talking about Jesus. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. So the the blood that Jesus is wearing in that scene in Revelation is representing the price that he paid for our sins. Just like Joseph is now paying for the sins of his brothers. And Joseph, who we'll later later see was the deliverer of his brothers, eventually we'll see it in the story, is sold away for a few silver coins. Just like Jesus, our ultimate deliverer, was was turned over to the Romans by Judas for a few silver coins as well. And again, we see just the utter callousness of their brother's hearts. They go to their father, and they're like, yeah, he's dead. Check this out, you know. And again, probably totally underestimating how devastated his father was going to be. His father lived for years thinking that his son had been ripped apart by a wild animal. (laughs) That would be hard to live with. And Jacob is is absolutely distraught. 
And our sin can really destroy people if we're not careful. And, and I know it's, it's, it's true of me. I think it's true of most of us that, that we want to kind of lessen what we think the impact of our sin is on other people. We want to believe that what we're doing isn't really that bad, that, that maybe as Jake said, that we're, we're justified in what we did, and maybe we're even a little bit annoyed at how much people are overreacting by all of this. It's not that big of a deal. But the truth is, and you'll just have to trust me on this one, the truth is, is that whatever impact we think our sins have had in other people's lives, it's almost always worse. It's almost always worse than we think. That's why sometimes later on in life, you, 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 know, you, you have a conversation with your, with your kids or your parents, and, and they're hanging on to something from like 15 years ago you didn't even realize was a big deal. And they're like, man, when you said that thing to me, it just pierced me. And you're like, man, I had no idea that I hurt you that badly. Verse 36 is a critical ending to this story. It says, meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So Joseph is taken to Egypt, and he's sold to a man named Potiphar, who's an official of the Pharaoh. And why is this important? I want you to flip back to Genesis 15. This is God's original covenant with Abraham. Genesis 15, look at verse 12. It says, As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. This series of unfortunate events is so critical because this, this act of hatred and jealousy and deception actually became the fulfillment of a prophecy given to Abraham many years before. And God was moving in the midst of this tragedy to put into place the pieces that would lead to the Israelites' ultimate redemption. And so those brothers could not have known at that time that everything that they were doing, all their actions were actually fulfilling Joseph's dreams that he had shared with them. It was still many years away in the future, but one day it would all come to pass. Just like the Pharisees in Jesus' day, the religious leaders, they, they could not have known that their murderous actions against Jesus really led to the fulfillment of God's purpose for his one and only son, his mission to be killed and resurrected, to be the salvation for the whole world, including the very Pharisees that put him on the cross. It's no mistake that when we see characters in the Bible who are a type of Christ, we talked about how many of the characters we looked at are, are types of Christ, they're foreshadowing his ministry, that almost always their lives are characterized by a pretty significant amount of suffering. Joseph has already suffered quite a bit here, right? He's been disowned by his brothers. He's been thrown into a well. 
He's been sold into slavery and had to go to a foreign land. It's been rough. But honestly, as we'll see in coming weeks, his suffering is just getting started. It gets worse for him. And there's no glory without suffering. That's why Jesus, when he came, and if you look at his words in the Gospels, he makes it very clear to people in the crowds. He says, guys, listen. It's a narrow road that leads to life. And only a few are going to find it. Because my calling to my followers is this, to deny yourself and to take up your cross daily and to follow me. You better consider the cost before you decide to jump on my team. It's not going to be easy. But the paradox in all of that is that as we lay our life down and pick up that cross and follow him, is that's, that's how we find life. That's how we find freedom for ourselves and, and the ability to be leaders to take other people to freedom as well. I want you to turn your Bibles one last time here to Acts 14. Acts 14. It's page 1007, 1007. Acts 14, verse 21. This is Paul writing. I'm sorry, Luke is writing. He's talking about Paul. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. What goes through your mind when you hear a statement like that? Yeah. Do what now? Okay. The path to Christ is rough and hard. What else? How many is many? <laughs> Be more specific. If it's 10 hardships, I think I can do it. Just don't, don't put me through 12. Yes, Aaron. Yeah. She says that doesn't help uh, add up to, to her goal, which is to avoid hardships at all costs all the time, right? What else? Yeah, Haley? Do what now? Okay, we're going to make a lot of bad decisions. Brad? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the opposite of what we hear a lot about what following Christ is about, right? And, and we have to ask ourselves the question, in light of that statement, are we trying to create a different kind of Christianity? Where cost is low and comfort is high. 
Because guys, I've been following Jesus now for, for over 30 years. And I can tell you from multiple experience in my life that forgiveness is costly. Humility is costly. Downward mobility is costly. Loving our enemies is costly. Keeping a rein on our tongue when we'd rather lash out at someone and put them in their place is costly. Controlling our lusts and passions is costly. Staying married when we've been wronged is costly. For most of us, giving away 10% of our income is costly. And I could go on with many other examples. But if our Christianity isn't costing us something, if there's not suffering in our life at some level, then we do have to ask the question, are we really following Jesus? Or have we created kind of our own version of Christianity that we hope God will just kind of rubber stamp and say, yeah, that'll work. God had to allow Joseph to suffer to accomplish his great plans for Israel. And as we'll see, as we, the story unveils here, unfolds over the next few weeks, that, that his attitude throughout this difficult story made all of the difference. His trust in God and in, in how God was allowing the story to happen was, was amazing. And we have to ask ourselves the same question, is do we trust God enough to believe that our sufferings, whatever circumstances are difficult in us, whatever trials and tribulations we've gone through, will go through, are going through, and no matter where they came from, whether they were a result of our own sin, the sins of somebody else in our life, bad luck of just living in a broken world, or actually God-ordained sufferings in our life are actually opportunities for us to lean into God and be shaped into the character of Christ in the midst of it? Do we trust God enough to have that perspective? Because Joseph, as we'll see, consistently made the choice to trust in God's timing and in his provision. So I'm excited, I think, here for the next few weeks to to continue to go into the story to reveal some of the ways that he navigated some really difficult things. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this uh, story that we got to start today. And um, man, I mean, it's, it's worse than any uh, TV show or movie that we can make today. Nothing's really changed in the human heart. The jealousy, the envy, the arrogance, the pride, the brazen <laughs> sin. Is, it's been there from the beginning, God. You're not surprised by any of it. I think for us, as we see some of that stuff in our own lives, um, as we said, like we, we probably underestimate the impact that it's having not only in us, but in the lives of people that we've hurt because of it. So Lord, if, 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 you, if you spoke to us this morning about something along the ways, the lines of the ways that we've hurt people and maybe underestimated the pain that we've caused somebody, would you give us the courage to, to go and to just ask and inquire? <laughs> You know, hey, do you feel that I've, you know, forgiven from that? Is there anything still lingering there that we need to talk through? 
And Lord, if we've kind of created a, a form of, of Christianity, of following you that, that kind of lowers the bar and, and, and of suffering and raises the bar of comfort in our life, would you just show us where we've done that? Uh, give us the perspective that we need to have to, to kind of embrace suffering as, as, as an opportunity to be shaped. Uh, we don't learn much in comfort and success. <laughs> Not a whole lot of character is shaped in those times. So God, make our hearts open to, to being challenged and, and to lean into you in the midst of that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.